Wow, that was seriously incredible, Lauren. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, hey, y'all, it's good to be here tonight. If you haven't been here before, um, welcome. My name's Amy Stapleton, like Elena said. Wow, I like don't know how to open this iPad. You can tell I haven't had this for long. Um, I'm technologically challenged, and that comes up almost every time I'm up here. Um, but anyway, so if you were here one of the last two weeks, you probably heard, you heard from my husband, Nick. And I think he might have even shared a picture of our two boys. And they're fun, so I'm going to share a picture of them, a couple pictures of them, too. We have two boys. That's Liam. He's two years old. And uh, so we had to, and that's Lucas. <laughs> yeah, he's four. So they're showing off their muscles because we had to come up with some sort of like marketing gimmick to get them to eat food. So we started calling meat like muscle, it's muscle meat, yeah, eat your muscle meat. So like all meal long, we're just like showing each other muscles, oh yeah, oh yeah. So that's what they're doing. Also, he's, we're all very excited for the Bengals to start playing and he's wearing his Bengals jersey. Um, but being parents is super fun and it's exciting because they're always growing and entering new stages and learning different things and see their little personalities develop. But it can also be sometimes a little and sometimes just a lot overwhelming because of how much they need. Um, if any of y'all work with kids or maybe babysit or have even little siblings, you might know what I'm talking about, but man, they need a lot. Like, they need all the normal stuff, like food and water and diapers changed. But then they need like to be read to all the time, or they won't develop intellectually, and they need to be affirmed and loved and encouraged, or they won't develop emotionally, and they need to be taught about God in ways that they understand, or they won't develop spiritually. And then they need to be able to like tell you long, drawn-out stories that you don't really understand, but you have to seem like patient and interested no matter what, because they need to know that they have your attention. and. And it just never stops, and I mean, until they sleep. Like, when they're asleep, yeah, they don't need anything, but that's basically the only time. Um, but if I'm honest, and I wonder if we're, if, like, we're honest with ourselves, too, we need a lot as well. We have lots of needs. This often stuff as kids that's so obvious and blatant, it's really just a reflection of what continues to be true of us our entire lives. And it forces me to look at my own nature and just how needy I really am. I'm always looking to the next thing to, to satisfy me, the next thing to entertain me, the next person to make me feel loved, maybe the next achievement or accomplishment to make me feel valuable, something to get me through this hour or this day or this week. And I think many of us, we live with this level of dissatisfaction. While living in one of the wealthiest and most privileged countries in the whole world, we still feel like we have big needs that aren't met. And this is actually no accident. This is how we were created. We were created with deep needs that can't just be met by food, or drink, or entertainment, or even by people. We have deep needs that can only be met by God. 
And so we're in the middle of this series called Things Jesus Said. And tonight I want to talk about things Jesus said about what we need the most. Because we were created by God and for God, he knows what we really need. So we're going to look at a passage together where Jesus is going to reveal our greatest need and then meet it. So let me pray for us. Father, I just pray that you would give us soft hearts, ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have for us, that you would open our eyes to the ways that we desperately need you, that we often cover it up, push it away, try to distract, but it's always there. Help us to see our need for you and to meet with you in ways that we can feel fulfilled and satisfied and really know you. And God, if, if somebody's here tonight and just doesn't know you yet, God, I pray you'd open their eyes to see their need for you, that you would help their hearts believe that this is true. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and turn. If you have a Bible, we're just gonna be in one passage the whole time, so you can turn to Mark 2. We're gonna read a little and talk a little. And I'll start reading. It's just Mark chapter two and it starts right off in verse one. So Mark two, it says, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So Jesus' fame is already, just in Mark chapter 2, he's just started his ministry, but where we're jumping in, his fame is already so great that even just having him around is a logistical nightmare. There's nowhere big enough. They're coming because he's doing miraculous things. He's healing people, he's casting out demons, but he's also saying incredible things. And if we were to flip back to Mark chapter 1, we would see that when Jesus first steps on the scene, when he first shows up, one of the first thing he says is this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is speaking mostly to Jews. He's been traveling to these Jewish towns and Jewish people at this time they would have understood what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. They had the Hebrew Bible and it tells about a time that a king would come. A king from the line of David would come and he would overcome demons, he would usher in a perfect government, he would be righteous and sinless, and he was gonna save the whole world from their sin. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's really saying is, I'm him. I'm the king. The kingdom of God is at hand because I'm finally here. I'm the king who rescues. I'm the king who's gonna overcome Satan's sin and death. I'm the savior. Everything that you've been longing for and waiting for and dreaming about and wondering, is this ever really gonna happen? It's here, it's at hand. And because he's the king, he calls them to repent and believe in him, believe in the gospel. And repent just means turn away from your sin. You get the idea. 
This is long awaited. For some Jews listening, this feels long overdue. We thought this day might never come. And he shows up and says, I'm finally here, so stop running after your petty pleasures. Stop living just to please yourself. Turn towards me, because you're not going to want to miss what I'm here to do. This is what he's been preaching. And the crowd around Jesus, as we've just stepped on the scene, is so huge, you can't get anywhere near him. We're going to continue on in verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. It just dives in. We don't even know anything about who the they is. It just says, and, and they came. So, so some people came. They came bringing to him a paralytic, someone who couldn't walk or someone who maybe even couldn't move a muscle. And when they couldn't get near to him because of the crowd, they make an opening in the roof so that they can lay him at Jesus' feet. So we quickly realize that even though we know nothing about these men, we know that they'll stop at nothing. Get to the roof, dig a hole. Like, this would have involved bringing dirt and debris down on people's heads who were inside the building. There, Jesus is inside, the crowd's inside, the rest of the crowd is outside trying to listen, and they're digging a hole in the roof. They're being incredibly disruptive, raining down dirt, but they don't care. One thing is driving them, one goal, get our friend in front of Jesus. And why? Because they know Jesus could heal him. If Jesus really is this long-awaited king that he says he is, who saves people, they've heard about how he can heal anyone, he's been doing it, then Jesus is this guy's only hope. The paralytic's needs are evident. This guy needs a lot. There's probably not much he can do without help. Even simple things like moving from one place to the other, washing, getting food, going to the bathroom. This guy needs help. You might say that of all the people who've come to be healed by Jesus, he, he might be the neediest. He's expecting healing from Jesus. But this is where things take kind of an unexpected turn. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, I heal you. No, he didn't. He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm, okay, have you ever been like expecting some, like one thing to happen, maybe even looking forward to it, and then you're a little taken off guard because it doesn't really pan out that way that you thought? I remember one birthday, I was probably about nine, and I had like a bunch of presents, and then I had this giant present, and I was like, oh, I got my eye on this jet, like it's gonna be something awesome, I just know it, so I saved it for last. And everything else I opened, I was just like, ah, oh, this is cool, it's cool, but something really good's gonna be in that. And then I opened it, and it was like a $1 pack of baseball cards. And my grandpa just thought it would be funny to like wrap it 30 times, not realizing that it was an incredible letdown. And I have to imagine that maybe that's what these guys are feeling right now, like just, just a touch let down, confused. They were expecting a miracle, healing. 
but instead they just hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. It's probably kind of hard for them to even appreciate what's happening, but here's what's happening. Jesus knows this man needs healing. And of all the people lined up to be healed by Jesus, this guy's needs are probably the most evident. Can't walk, can't sit up. But Jesus is taking this moment to point out an even greater need that he has. More than he needs to be able to walk. More than he needs to be able to do things for himself. More than he needs to be healed. Maybe he's in pain. Even more than that, this guy needs his sins forgiven. And here's kind of the main, one of the main points I want to draw from this. That our greatest need is the same. Our greatest need by far is to be forgiven and made right with God. Our greatest need by far is to be forgiven and brought near, brought close to the God who made us and loves us. Son, your sins are forgiven because that's what you most need. You probably can't see it right now. You, can't, you probably can't see past your physical needs, but I see it. And many of us, I think, we don't see it. Like, we don't often recognize or dwell on our sin and the ways that we fall short. Why would we? I can't think of a more, like, depressing <laughs> reality or thing to spend time just thinking about. In fact, I often try to block it out. Like, those things that I am ashamed of, those things that I can't forget, that I wish I could just wipe clean out of my memory, I do my best to push those to that corner of my mind where I don't have to acknowledge them and where I just hope to escape thinking about them at all. Or maybe even a spirit of comparison often has us thinking like, I'm pretty good. I mean, compared to that girl, yeah, I think I'm okay. Compared to some of my friends, compared to my friends who cheat on exams or, or you know, compared to, to whatever, like, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. Whether it's because you try to do what's right, because you show up at crew, because you go to church or, or whatever, we usually have this idea that, man, if the good was weighed against the bad, I, I think I would come out on top. And here's the bad news about that. God isn't comparing us one to another. God's not just going to scoop up all the people who have lived on the earth and do a curve like a professor or just take the top half. He's not, he, I think he is doing a comparison, but it's not one of us to another. I would say he's comparing us as we are to us as we were meant to be. If you were to read the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you would see that when, when we were first created, when earth was first created, it was all good. And, and things weren't just good. But the word the Bible uses is tov, which has this connotation of awe. Like, wow. Think this is so good. This is so good. This is everything I've ever wanted. This is perfect. This is paradise. This is amazing. But it didn't last. And the, the story of Genesis 
is meant to leave us with this conviction that we had a chance to submit to and follow and love God or we could put ourselves in his place and try to take his place as the king. And that's what we chose. And sin entered the world and our world took a turn. And, and even what the Bible shows from that point on is this crazy downward spiral of where sin has led us. It became um, violent and we experienced death and disease and greed and deceit and injustice. And then it got worse and then it got worse and then it got normal. And now we're in so deep, I don't think we even see it a lot of the time. There's this famous graduation address given by this guy, David Foster Wallace, and it's a little story about a couple of fish. It says there were two fish swimming along, and the older fish swimming in the opposite direction goes, how's the water today, boys? And the two little fish keep swimming along after he's gone, and one finally turns and says to the other, what the heck is water? And here's the point, sometimes the most obvious and important realizations are the ones that are the hardest to see. Sometimes when you're so deep in it, you've forgotten that it's even really a part of how things were not supposed to be, that, that things were supposed to be different. So it's like we're so used to gossip and speaking poorly of others that we don't even know we're doing it anymore. We're so used to complaining about our friends to our roommates or our roommates to our friends that we, we don't even think twice. It's just a normal part of life. I'm, I'm just venting, just need to vent. We're so used to judging others that I know for me, it, it springs up without even conscious decision sometimes, seemingly. That's how it feels. It just springs to my mind. Gosh, we're so used to thinking about ourselves all the time. What do I think? How do I feel? How am I doing today? What do I need? What do I want? We, our culture might even advocate that that's a really good thing. Should think about ourselves. And whether or not we want to admit it or dwell on it, I, I would say this is true about all of us. And it starts early. That's another thing being a parent has taught me. It's tempting for some people, and I've, I've actually heard someone say this, like, oh, kids are, kids are so innocent, you know, they're just innocent, and then the world comes and ruins them, and like, yeah, okay. Uh, no one has to teach my kids to like punch each other in the mouth, but it happens. It's not long before you become a referee if you're watching little kids. But here's the thing that helps us see what we can't often see is if we think about what we were created to be like, about how things were before, about how things are supposed to be, and that's when we see the contrast. And I think that's what God is seeing and hoping and thinking about. Here's what I created you to, to be like. Here's what this world was meant to be like. And here's how much it's fallen. One of the well, not one of the, actually, the absolute greatest commandment, people, when they're asking Jesus even, what's the greatest commandment? He says, it's to love God with all our heart 
and mind and soul and strength, and that the second greatest is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now just imagine for a minute if that were really true of you. If you were, if you, I mean, whatever that looks like, if you loved God with your whole heart and mind and soul and strength, and you loved your neighbor as fiercely and passionately as you love and want good for yourself, just imagine how that would look different, even just for one day. And that version of us, I think, it's not, like that version of you isn't worried about the little things because you really believe what Jesus says about, you know, life is short and you have hope in heaven. That version of you is looking forward with joy to the next life. Like that you doesn't constantly look for satisfaction in other things that end up being empty, but that you finds fulfillment and fullness of life and satisfaction in Christ. And subsequently, because you're so loving and so focused on God, you're able to be loving and focused on others. The burden of constantly being focused on ourselves, I think it would melt away. And so Jesus, looking at this man, he gives him what he truly needs the most. He needs forgiveness. He needs to be right with God. He needs to be close with the God who made him. He needs to be washed clean and brought close to God so that he can experience the life he was created for. And so let me ask you this right now. Whether you're a Christian in this room or not, can you see it? If you had to think right now, would it be hard for you to see this sin that you're swimming in? Because let me assure you, it is all around us. I remember when I first, very, very first started walking with the Lord, it was in college, and someone had told me about confessing sin, and I had already stopped doing like the two big things that I knew were holding me back from the Lord. Like I'd stopped like having these inappropriate stuff with guys, and I'd, I'd stopped drinking underage, and that, those are the things that I was like, man, these are really holding me back from having a relationship with the Lord, and I finally got rid of them. Whew, yeah, okay. I think I'm good. And somebody was telling me about confessing sin and how that should just be like this continual thing we do all the time. And I was like, but what if like I get through the day and I can't really, there's no sin. Like what if there's just nothing? And um, I think then God like very graciously but very quickly after that convinced me that that's never, ever, ever going to be the case. Because I think it might have even been the very next day that I, I just started to realize, like, oh, yeah, like, that, like, I was on a summer mission at the time. That girl on summer mission with me, yep, every single time I see her, I feel insecure and jealous. Is that sin? I, I guess it is, yeah. Wow, well, then I'm sinning a lot. Or what I just said when I was joking around with my friends that was kind of like not cool. I don't think I would have wanted that person to hear that. Is that, oh, I guess that counts too. Wait, what about if I only think it, but I don't actually say anything? Is that, oh, yeah, that too? Wow, okay. Okay then. I guess I am more sinful than I ever thought. 
like the Bible says, but it took some convincing. And I just wanna say too, um, this feels like, so far, a, a little bit of a bummer of a talk. <laughs> Me just trying to convince you that you're worse than you wanted to think that you are. Um, but it's not, it, it would be easy to imagine that my goal is to get you to sit in guilt or just feel really bad. Like my goal is for you to sit there and then at the end of the night you're gonna go out and you're gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna try harder. Mm, okay, yep, I'm gonna kick it into gear. I'm gonna try harder. I think that might be one of the worst things you could do if you're in this boat where you're recognizing sin. Sure, maybe do that in like later. But do you know what? I think if we're actually following Christ and, and what he would want us to do in those moments when we become aware of our sin, all we have to do is ask for forgiveness. I would say maybe that's one breath. And in the very next breath, we can celebrate that he's already given it to us. That if you know Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, he has made it clear that if you're, if you're faithful to confess your sin to me, I'm faithful and just to forgive you every single time. Every single time. And that him dying on the cross for us wasn't just enough to cover like the sins of the last couple years, but not enough for right now after I've already started walking with the Lord. Now this kind of stuff, I need to work this off. Gosh, you couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> I have to imagine, I don't know if God gets frustrated, but if he did, I would imagine that maybe one of the times he's most frustrated is when we are hesitant to bring our junk to him. When we are tempted to think like, man, I'm not good enough. Or I really messed up today. I don't think I can pray right now. I don't think I want, I, I'm just kind of gonna pretend that the Lord can't see me, doesn't know me, I'll start fresh tomorrow. We always are tempted to do that, aren't we? To hide like he doesn't know. The Bible actually says that there's absolutely nowhere you could go where the Lord isn't. Even if you went down to Sheol, to the land of the dead, you could never escape. So he sees us already, and he's already made a way for us to know him and be close to him and have 100% assurance that we're good with him. I'm going to keep reading in verse 6. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? <coughs> Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So the scribes mentioned, they were basically the religious elite. They are incredibly well-educated, and they are used to being on top. They're actually probably really used to having people look up to them and ask them questions about the Hebrew Bible or God or, you know, trust in their authority. 
However, even scribes cannot forgive sin, never. That word blasphemy, it means that you're putting yourself in God's place. You're, you're calling yourself God. You're saying that you can do something that everyone knows. That is only something that God can do. And that's what Jesus says right now. They're scandalized that Jesus is presuming to say this. And Jesus' response is kind of a funny one. His question that he asks, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? And I wanna be like, well, is this a trick question? Like, they're both equally easy to say. But yeah, if, if you think about it, going to someone to seek healing, it's actually not unheard of. But forgiving sins is only reserved for God alone. So which is easier? Well, well healing should be easier, technically, but forgiving sins can't be seen. You can't look at someone and say, hmm, I can tell, something's different about you. Which is why Jesus continues in verse 10, and he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I mean, this is next level. If we were to go back and even just flip to the first chapter of Mark up until where we are now, you would have seen that there's been a ramping up of Jesus's authority. That, that first he showed his authority um, to teach the scriptures, to teach in a way that, that he has new or deep things to share, that no scribe or Pharisee would ever talk like that. And then he showed his authority over the devil to cast out demons. And then he showed his authority over illness and disease. And, and now, this huge ramping up, he's healing someone, but really what he's doing is showing his authority to forgive our sin, something that only God can do, which is why the people respond and say, we've never seen anything like this. So the paralytic was healed, but his greatest need was to be forgiven. And what's true of him is true of every single person here. And it's also true of every single person not here. And that's just the, the second and final thing I wanted to pull from this passage, is we need to get our friends in front of Jesus. We need to get our friends in front of Jesus. Thinking back to those four men, what they were willing to do to get their friend in front of Jesus, like, it's astounding. Um, it's incredible, because like, I mean, they pushed through the crowds, they didn't back down. When there wasn't a clear way, they found one. When there wasn't a path, they dug a hole. Like, they brought down dirt on people's heads, they brought anger on from the crowd, surely. They worked together to lower their friend down. And it's incredible, and yet, it's not because they so clearly saw their friend's need and they saw the one who could meet it. That loving their friend and seeing the only hope for him, they couldn't do anything else. Nothing was going to stop them. And I think when we think about sharing our faith 
sharing about Jesus with others or maybe inviting someone to, to crew or to church with you or whatever, we can imagine that I'm, I'm, I'm crossing the line. I'm, I'm, I'm crossing the line here. I, I don't want to push what I believe on other people. Like, this is what I believe, but I wouldn't dream of telling someone else like what they should believe. Come on. It's like our whole thing right now. But there's two very important points that I wanted to share and pull from this story. And the first is just this. If you love someone, you'll do what it takes to introduce them to Jesus. It's actually the most loving thing you could possibly do for them. Because if you really believe what, what maybe some of you say that you believe, that, that God created all of us for himself, and that closeness and rightness with him is only found through Jesus and him forgiving us, that without him, we're separated from God now and in the life to come. If you really believe that, how can you not? Someone somewhere, can't remember here, just said, how much do you have to hate someone to not share Jesus with them? <laughs> I feel like I'm being loving by not, you know? Like, I don't wanna. <sighs> That's a real perspective change. Yeah, okay, how much do you have to hate them? So you don't like them, right? <laughs> like, what? I, of course I don't hate them. Well, then something's off. Either you don't really believe what you say you believe or, or you don't really care that much about them. Not enough to get over, I don't know, your own comfort, your own fear, your own insecurity. Um, The second thing we learn about bringing our friends to Jesus from this story is that there will be obstacles. For these men, there were obvious ones, right? Physical obstacles. Their friend couldn't walk. Sorry, right, we'll carry him. Uh, the crowd was so dense they couldn't get to the door. We'll get on the roof. <laughs> There's no way down. We'll dig a hole. We'll lower him down. No fear of man, no fear of reproof, no fear of, I don't know, financial compensation for the roof. <laughs> Nothing stopped them. They were willing to endure all of it to get him to Jesus. And so I want to know, do you have people in your life who don't know Jesus? Do you have roommates? Do you have classmates? Do you have brothers or sisters right in front of you, people you might have who don't know him? And do you realize that in a lot of people's lives, you might be one of the most influential voices? That probably feels hard to believe. The whole reason why is because you already have relationship, even if it's something they don't want to hear. So personally, I have three sisters, and two of them don't know the Lord. And I can guarantee you that if a stranger walked up to them and tried to talk to them about Jesus, <laughs> they would be out of there so fast. They are not polite. <laughs> they would just probably laugh in their face and walk away or make up some excuse to get away. But I'm their sister. So even if I, if I can't get through to them or convince them, which by the way is not our job, 
they're still going to hear me out because they know me and they know I care about this and they know I care about them. I've gotten to share the gospel with them several times. Nick has shared the gospel with them. And even though they haven't, they haven't placed their faith in Jesus, they're not all in, I've seen them come a little bit closer almost every time we talk. Almost every time we talk, we get to dispel maybe some assumption that they had about the Bible or some wrong view that they had about God or help them understand some, something about God's law that just feels really hard to swallow. And so my job isn't actually to convince anyone. I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Bible's clear that it's God who actually moves in people's hearts and brings them to a place of surrender, my job is just to open my mouth and trust him. So what are the obstacles for you? I'm guessing fear is maybe your biggest one. It still is a big one for me. How are people going to respond? Is it going to be awkward? Am I going to jeopardize my relationship with them? There was a girl I went to class with my senior year of college. This one class we had all semester, um, I don't know how, we just happened to sit next to each other like every single class, but we never really talked. We would like explain, exchange pleasantries maybe. And um, day after day, like when I was in class, I really just felt like this growing, like one of the first days I was like, I like her, I should invite her to crew. And then every day after that, I just had this growing like, come on, like I should really invite her, like just do it, just do it. And every day I would come to class and I'd be like, today's the day, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna wait, there'll be some opportunity and I'll do it. But I never did. And then one day, the next semester, long after our class was over, and I totally missed my chance, I was at Crew in Ohio, and I was um, late, so I just kind of hung out in the back. I think it was like standing room only, so I'm just standing in the back. And I was listening to the speaker. My eyes just rested on the back of this girl's head. She was there. She was in the very back row, all alone. And in that moment, I just thought, Amy, you're an idiot. All semester long, you chickened out because you were intimidated or you thought she wouldn't be interested or you thought she was too cool or whatever. And obviously, you were dead wrong. And because I was so wrong, I missed out on inviting her and getting to invite her to sit with me or introducing her to my friends and all that that could have been and all the extra time we might have had. Um, but at least I knew that she was not going to leave there without me saying something to her. And as soon as worship ended and the lights came back up, the meeting was not over. <laughs> she stood up and made a beeline for the exit. And I basically jumped in front of her <laughs> because I was not going to let this happen again. And I saw that she was crying. And obviously, the Lord had been doing something in her mind or her heart while she was there. And she just couldn't wait to get out. So I just really quickly begged her for her number. Hey, oh man, I can see that you're upset. Can I please get your number? I would love to meet up. And I texted her and we got together the next week and I got to share the gospel with her. And she ended up 
placing her faith in Christ. And she got a hold of me, she kind of fell off the map after that, but she got a hold of me like a year later and asked if we could meet up, and she thanked me for sharing the gospel with her that one time a year ago, and said that for her that was the start of everything. And so I get, legitimately I get scared too. But now every time I feel scared, I actually think about Corinne and how wrong I once was just to assume that she wasn't interested. She wouldn't want anything to do with this. It's not worth it. It might make things awkward. And so now I try as much as possible to just open my mouth. And so if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Um, We want this to be a place where you feel like you can belong, we feel like you can listen, take in, belong in our community. Um, But I do feel compelled to point something out to you. And that's just, I think as this story shows, being a part of the crowd around Jesus and following Jesus are not the same thing. It's interesting how the crowds often operate in the stories. They're not, sometimes they're neutral, sometimes they're an obstacle, like in this story. The crowds here actually were kind of what was keeping others who really wanted to be in front of Jesus from being in front of him. The crowd stands and observes, but just true followers of Christ, they act, they commit. And so where are you at? Have you been standing and observing long enough? What else do you need to know? What questions do you need answered in order to to take the next step? He can meet our greatest need to be forgiven, completely washed clean. And actually what Christ did on the cross, it even goes further than that. You're not just forgiven, now I got a blank slate. But what happens is actually something called the great exchange where my black and sinful and tarnished record isn't just wiped clean, but it's swapped. It's swapped for Jesus' perfect record, for his righteousness. So it's not as if I'd never sinned. It's as if I've always done everything right. It's incredible. It's an incredible offer that the God of the universe makes to us that he left heaven and came down to be one of us, to be in hardship and humiliated and betrayed and crucified, all so that he could do everything that we couldn't, all so that he could rise from the dead and defeat death and sin once and for all, all so that we could know him, all so that when he looked at us, he didn't feel like, man, there's no way. Now there's a way. We all have a way. And the Bible calls us ambassadors for Christ that God is making his appeal to other people through us. There isn't much God does in the Bible apart from using humans. Have you ever noticed that? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. Everything he decides to use us. Even one of his greatest acts, parting the Red Sea, if you were looking on, you would just see Moses. He always decides to work through us, chooses to use us to reach other people. 
So if you're tempted to think, God doesn't really need me. He doesn't really need me to move, to move towards someone. If he really wanted that person, he could make it happen. I don't think that's what we're meant to walk away with when we read scripture. I think we're meant to walk away with, how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for sending Jesus for us that you made a way when there was no way, that you are the God who loves us, wanted us despite our sin, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that our greatest need is found in you. God, I just pray that we would see that, that we would acknowledge our need for you, whether or not we are already Christians or not. Maybe there's people in here tonight who just feel like, I know I'm forgiven, but I don't feel it. Or I don't think this thing I've done lately is, is forgivable. God, there's nothing too big for you. You went to the cross for us. That's how much you love us. That's how much you want us to come to you with anything, with everything. You want us to feel the freedom and revel in your forgiveness and your goodness, not to sit in guilt, but to revel in what you've done for us and that we don't have to be perfect because you are perfect for us. In Jesus' name, amen.